we can juxtapose on the one hand a very very powerful integral intellectual you know running policy and in a lot of ways doing some very smart things to understand the nature of the situation and of course what the the failings of their opponent are but then turning around and making some mistakes themselves because they're not doing a good enough job to integrate and it could be because they don't have an adequate enough developmental sensibility about what's happening with with green and now emergent teal that was rob smith discussing wang huning who is arguably the world's most influential and powerful intellectual and you've probably never heard of him as he has sat quietly at the top of china's power structure advising three presidents over 30 years the architect of many of china's most significant contemporary ideological and strategic efforts He's deeply studied in the philosophy and the ways of the West. Long before Rob's own analysis that the West is amidst a monumental breakdown he called a great release, Huning came to the conclusion that the decadence of the United States, its culture and capitalism, will lead it to ruin, and China must be steered in a different and in some ways more integral direction. The stakes couldn't be higher. To understand this century, we have to understand the geopolitical and philosophical power struggle between China and the United States and the differing global operating systems they're fighting for. And to better understand that struggle, we have to better understand whether the cognition of China's leaders are integral or not. Are they capable of bringing the teal power to integrate to bear on the world system? For that answer, we must look to Wang Huning. Hey friends, uh, this is Rob from Inner to Life, and I wanted to um, get to you on a uh, article I just read that I um, want to acknowledge. Jordan McLeod uh, tweeted to me on, uh, or he actually tweeted out, and I uh, I read it, and my response was quite immediate that this was one of the most important articles I've read in years, and I wanted to go through why I thought that is, and why I wanted to bring it to your attention. And I wanted to actually walk through it with you step by step. It's a fascinating article. And I decided to do this kind of immediate reply in a very kind of ad hoc way. <clears throat> no preparation. I'm just going to wing it. But um, it's because I wanted to really uh, address this and, and, and talk it through kind of in real time. The article is from Palladium uh, Magazine at palladiummag.com. Um, the article is called uh, The Triumph and Terror of Wang Huning. And this is by N.S. Lyons, who is an analyst uh, out of New York. I don't know much about his background. Um, and you can certainly read about it in the link here that we'll, uh, we'll post with this piece. So with that, I'm going to actually read you various pieces of that. Um, first, let me contextualize what it's talking about. It's talking about Wang Huning, who is a more or less unknown um, intellectual in the at the very, very top of the Chinese power structure. Uh, came out of um, the university system there, as you will soon learn as I, as I walk through this with you, and has been advising, actually has advised three presidents uh, in China over the last 30 years. The reason why this is such an important piece in my point of, from my point of view is that 
we are we're, we are literally seeing the ongoing evolution of a contest of uh, ideologies uh, between the East and the West in our lifetime. And it is we're in the earlier innings of that than the later innings. We, we are we are we are getting a more kind of ascendant contest um, as we come into the future here. And it's not too much to say that the the nature of that contest and the and the, the consequences of it and the winners and losers of it and the shape of what emerges is going to be one of the most powerful determinants of the 21st century. I also will say I don't I don't believe it's necessarily a binary contest. I think there's all kinds of room for an analog outcome where you've got you know a, a, a blending of the of of Eastern and Western styles and um, uh, in what ultimately results. And there's going to be a lot of different actors and a lot of different power structures that 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 bear on it, um, from culture to religion to the to capital markets to uh, developing countries to you know military power, et cetera. So all very interesting stuff. Um, obviously, I've long I've been a long time um, uh, kind of uh, interested student uh, of China, and I find that what's going on right now is just fascinating. Um, let me jump into this. So it goes into this. One day in August 2021, Zhao Wei disappeared. For one of China's best known actresses to physically vanish from public view would have been enough to cause a stir on its own. But Zhao's disappearing act was far more thorough. Overnight, she was erased from the internet. Her Weibo social media page with its 86 million followers went offline, as did fan sites dedicated to her. Searches for her many films and television shows returned no results on streaming sites. Zhao's name was scrubbed from the credits of project, projects she had appeared in or directed, replaced with a blank space. Online discussion, discussions uttering her name were censored. Suddenly, little trace remained that the 45-year-old celebrity had ever existed. She wasn't alone. Other Chinese entertainers also began to vanish as Chinese government regulators regulators announced a heightened crackdown intended to dispense with vulgar internet celebrities, promoting lascivious lifestyles and to resolve the problem of chaos created by online fandom, fandom culture. Those imitating the effeminate or androgynous aesthetics of Korean boy band stars, colorfully referred to as Zhao Zhanru or Little Fresh Meat, were next to go with the government vowing to resolutely put an end to sissy men appearing on the screens of China's impressionable youth. Zhao and her unfortunate compatriots in the entertainment industry were caught up in something far larger than themselves, a sudden wave of new government policies that are currently upending Chinese life in what state media has characterized as a profound transformation of the country. Officially referred to as Chinese President Xi Jinping's Common Prosperity Campaign, this transformation is proceeding along two parallel lines, a vast regulatory crackdown roiling the private sector economy and a broader moralistic effort to re-engineer Chinese culture from the top down. But why is this profound transformation happening and why now? Most analysis has focused on one man, Xi and his seemingly endless personal obsession with political control. The overlooked answer, however, 
is that this is indeed the culmination of decades of thinking and planning by a very powerful man, but that man is not Xi Jinping. I'll, re I'll continue on in a moment, but let's just take a look at a couple of the themes here that I think really get at the heart of, of this issue. Both China and the US are actually, ironically, suffering from something that I think China wrongly, display, wrongly characterizes as just kind of a disease of the liberalized West. Um, but both from their point of view and from many commentators in the US, it does feel that way. It feels like there is a disease in late stage capitalism that is creating uh, massive spiritual and existential ennui amongst citizens of the world, uh, particularly in China, as we'll see, and in the US uh, and in other developed countries, um, that there is this sense that it is, we're enmeshed in a winner take all economic system uh, and a whole list of other uh, problematic uh, social outcomes, the, the rise of rampant individualism, the, um, the, the, the deterioration of the nuclear family, at the core as a social organizing unit. All of these things will be addressed as, as we go forward here. But I wanna just note that the thematic here is China is saying, this is going to degrade us and we have to respond with a heavy hand and a top-down way to get ahead of it or we're in serious trouble. Um, what I think they, what I think they are, at least in, in this piece, are not getting at is the way in which actually information technology is the common denominator between both. That we're not just talking about a difference in values or political ideologies. What the entire world shares, and particularly what, what China and US share in their quest for continued global leadership or hegemony in this, in this contest, is that both are being, uh, are both are being kind of torn asunder by green, and in particular, green from the lower right quadrant, the the, the techno economic and information technology um, uh, uh, modes and artifacts that are allowing people to connect, um, that are shaking up um, the 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 ways in which human life operates. Uh, the nature of the economics uh, in information technology and social technology, which does in fact tend to be winner-take-all monopolies. Um, and the way it does promulgate a certain kind of uh, dissociated emptiness, uh, a narcissism, um, and a sense of nihilism. And, and we know this, we, we know this from, from looking at the data of our young people uh, and, and clearly as I'll read, it's, it's also affecting China. So I, I just wanna start off by saying, I believe that we're looking at something that yes, putatively is, a, is, a, uh, is an ideological battle to some degree, but what they share in common is at a deep structural level is actually more, I think more telling and has more explanatory power. That's important to bear in mind because I think that um, this analysis, his analysis, uh, and admittedly he, he, he looks brilliant, uh, may in fact be be off a bit. Okay, the gray eminence. 
Back to the article. Wang Huning much prefers the shadows to the limelight. An insomniac and workaholic, former friends and colleagues describe the bespectacled, soft-spoken political theorist as introverted and obsessively discreet. It took former Chinese leader Zhang Zemin's repeated entreaties to convince the brilliant then young academic who spoke wistfully of following the traditional path of a Confucian scholar aloof from politics to give up academia in the early 1990s and join the Chinese Communist Party regime instead. When he finally did so, Wang cut off nearly all contact with his former connections, stopped publishing and speaking publicly, and implemented a strict policy of never speaking to foreigners at all. Behind this veil of carefully cultivated opacity, it's unsurprising that so few people in the West know of Wang, let alone know him personally. Yet Wang Huning is arguably the single most influential public intellectual alive today. And that's easy to see why. Anyone that can have this much power at the core of a centralized system that itself is um, a, a true contender to run half of the world sphere um, has, could argue, it's a very, very compelling argument that he's the most, most powerful, most influential public intellectual alive today. Again, why I wanted to, to bring this uh, to your attention. A member of the CCP's seven-man Politburo Standing Committee, uh, arguably the seven most powerful people in China, he is China's top ideological theorist, quietly credited as being the ideas man behind each of Xi's signature political concepts, including the China Dream, the anti-corruption campaign, the Belt and Road Initiative, a more assertive foreign policy, and even Xi Jinping thought. Scrutinize any photograph of Xi on an important trip or at a key meeting, one is likely to spot Wang there in the background, never far from the leader's side. Wang has thus earned comparisons to famous figures of Chinese uh, history like Zhu Zhuang and Han Fei, historians dubbed the latter China's Machiavelli who similarly served behind the throne as powerful strategic advisors and conciliaries, a position referred to in Chinese literature as Dishi, emperor's teacher. Such a figure is just as readily recognizable in the West as an eminence grise, gray eminence, in the tradition of Tremblay, Talleyrand, Metternich, Kissinger, or Vladimir Putin advisor, Vladivlas Surkov. But what is singularly remarkable about Wang is that he's managed to serve in this role of court philosopher to not just one, but all three of Chinese previous top leaders, including as the pen behind Zhang Zemin's signature three represents policy and Hu Jintao's harmonious society. In the brutally cutthroat world of CCP factional politics, this is an unprecedented feat. Wang was recruited into the party by Zheng's Shanghai Gang, a rival faction that Xi worked to ruthlessly purge after coming to power in 2012. Many prominent members like former security chief Zhao Yonggang and former vice security minister Sun Li Jun have ended up in prison. Meanwhile, Hu Jintao's Communist Youth League faction has also been heavily marginalized as Xi's faction has consolidated control. Yet Wang Huning remains. More than any other, it is this fact that reveals the depth of his impeccable political cunning. And the fingerprints of China's gray eminence on the Common Prosperity campaign are unstakable. 
While it is hard to be certain what Wong really believes today inside his black box, he was once an immensely prolific author, publishing nearly 20 books along with numerous essays. And the obvious continuity between the thought in those works and what's happening in China today says something fascinating about how Beijing has come to perceive the world through the eyes of Wang Huning. Cultural competence. While other Chinese teenagers spent the tumultuous years of the Cultural Revolution sent down to the countryside to dig ditches and work on farms, Wang Huning studied French at an elite foreign language training school near his hometown of Shanghai, spending his days reading banned foreign literary classics secured for him by his teachers. Born in 1955 to a revolutionary family from Shandong, he was a sickly bookish youth. This, along with his family's connections, seems to have secured him a pass from hard labor. When China's shuttered universities reopened in 1978, following the commencement of reform and opening by Mao's successor, Zheng Xiaoping, uh, Wang was among the first to take the restored National University entrance exam, competing with millions for a chance to return to higher learning. He passed so spectacularly that Shanghai's Fudan University one of China's top institutions admitted him into its prestigious international politics master's program, despite never having completed a bachelor's degree. Talking about somebody with an innate brilliance, an innate genius. The thesis work he completed at Fudan, which would become his first book, traced the development of the Western concept of national sovereignty from antiquity to the present day, including from Gilgamesh through Socrates, Aristotle, Augustine, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Rousseau, Montesquieu, Hegel, and Marx, and contrasted it with the Chinese conceptions of the idea. The work would become the foundation for many of his future theories of the nation state and international relations. But Wang was also beginning to pick up the strands of what would become another core thread of his life's work, the necessary centrality of culture, tradition, and value structures to political stability. This is really key. This is someone who innately, innately understood and had the academic uh, background and the historical perspective to understand how the, the rest of a political structure, the rest of a political body cannot survive without some form of cohesion in the lower left quadrant. That the political apparatuses of the lower right, the laws, the economics, the behavior in the upper right, uh, and the, even the self-identities in the upper left will, will become fragmented and incoherent and uncohesive if the lower left is not, it does not itself, does not itself stay um, at some level adequately cohesive. That is an extraordinarily um, wise, it may seem simple, but it's an extraordinarily wise thing for their leadership to recognize. Uh, and that, that right there, that one component makes them a very powerful contestant amidst a green landscape that blows apart the lower left quadrant. And so again, from a geopolitical point of view, just the idea that at their highest levels of power, they recognize this philosophically and that they attend to it and that they 
are worried about it um, is, is, is an extraordinary, in my mind, uh, insight into the, to some degree, the enlightened nature of their political philosophy. They understand that the role of the lower left in maintaining uh, cohesion uh, culturally and uh, socially and politically. Uh, and, and particularly, again, amongst the green emergent, even though they don't use our language for that. Wang elaborated, <clears throat> Wang elaborated on these ideas in a 1988 essay, The Structure of China's Changing Political Culture, which would become one of its most, his most cited works. In it, he argued that the CCP must urgently consider how society's software, culture, values, attitudes, shapes political destiny as much as its hardware economics, systems, institutions. This is someone who early on was able to differentiate the quadrants and, and see where the primacy was. While seemingly a straightforward idea, this was notably a daring break from the materialism of orthodox Marxism. Yeah, truly truly a very uh, almost dangerous idea in some ways, uh, a return a little bit to the Confucianism that characterized Chinese political philosophy for millennia um, prior to the rise of Marxist thinking, actually. Examining China in the midst of Deng's rapid opening to the world, Wang perceived a country in a state of transformation from an economy of production to an economy of consumption, while evolving from a spiritually oriented culture to a materially oriented culture and from a collectivist culture to an individualistic culture. 35 years ago, he's diagnosing how China is in a transformative moment from amber to orange, again, without using that language. Uh, and the orange as we know it, the orange of the uh, neoliberal 20th century order led by the US and led by uh, Western capital markets from collectivism to individualism from a spiritually oriented culture of uh, traditional agrarianism of amber to a material orientation of value maximization of orange uh, an economy of production, which of course, every early uh, industrial age um, developing economy is to economy of consumption, which is what late stage, uh, late stage economies must achieve to become sustainable in late capitalism. with, by the way, devastating effects on the culture to some degree. Meanwhile, he believed that the modernization of socialism with Chinese characteristics was effectively leaving China without any real cultural direction at all. There are no core values in China's most recent structure, he warned. This could only serve, this could serve only to dissolve societal and political cohesion. He accurately diagnosed, in my point of view, he accurately diagnosed the disease of orange early on. And again, this is before we get, even get to the, the heart and apex of green with the onslaught of informational technologies and social technologies. This is still in the late 80s. 
he's accurately he's accurately diagnosed diagnosing um, the uh, the the, um, the way in which orange economic structures liberate but also dissolve uh, dissolve binds um, traditional binds and the way they um, dissolve social and political cohesion and um, left China without any core values to speak of. This could serve only to dissolve societal and political cohesion. That, he said, was untenable. And he's right. Warning that the components of the political culture shaped by the Cultural Revolution came to be divorced from the source that gave birth to this culture, as well as from social demands, social values, and social relations, and thus the results of the adoption of Marxism were not always positive. He argued that since 1949, we have criticized the core values of the classical and modern structures, but have not paid enough attention to shaping our own core values. Therefore, we must create core values. Ideally, he included, we must combine the flexibility of China's traditional values with the modern spirit, both Western and Marxist. As this article will soon note, interesting that he had this instinct towards integrating, both overcoming the um, spiritual vacuity of, of the Marxist project, rightly criticizing Western values, but also wanting to integrate what was value about, valuable about them while recapturing China's traditional core values but he goes through a transformation momentarily. But at this point, like many during those heady years of reform and opening, he remained hopeful that liberalism could play a positive role in China, writing that his recommendations could allow the components of the modern structure that embody the spirit of modern democracy and humanism to find the support they need to take root and grow. Now, I really wanna double click on this because this is, it's fascinating. China's most elite public intellectual today, and back then on his way to becoming that, but not yet recognized, already recognizes and is and is arguing for a com the components of the modern for components of the modern structure that embody the spirit of modern democracy and humanism to find the support they need to take root and grow. Trying to integrate a liberalism in that trying to integrate Western liberalism, democratic values, and what have you into the China of the day in the late 80s. This is remarkable on many fronts, not least of which is recognizing that this is, <clears throat> this is not an ignorant culture or political leadership, or leadership not understanding their political philosophy. This is, uh, this is someone here who had deeply considered the primary virtues of the Western system, uh, and in some ways was already attempting to emulate it, at least partially. 
And so to the extent that there is a transformation here, and there is, pay close attention because it's instructive for us. That would soon change a dark vision. Also in 1988, Wong, having risen with unprecedented speed to become Fudan's youngest full professor at age 30, remember, he's brilliant, won a coveted scholarship facilitated by the American Political Science Association to spend six months in the United States as a visiting scholar. Profoundly curious about America, Wong took full advantage, wandering about the country like a sort of latter-day Chinese Alexis de Tocqueville, visiting more than 30 cities and nearly 20 universities. What he found deeply disturbed him, permanently shifting his view of the West and the consequence of its ideas. This is 35 years ago. Wong recorded his observations in a memoir that would become his most famous work, the 1991 book, America Against America. In it, he marvels at homeless encampments in the streets of Washington, DC, out of control drug crime in poor black neighborhoods in New York and San Francisco, and corporations that seem to have fused themselves and taken over responsibilities of government. Eventually, he concludes that America faces an unstoppable undercurrent of crisis produced by its societal contradictions, including between rich and poor, white and black, democratic and oligarchic power, egalitarianism and class privilege, individual rights and collective responsibilities, cultural traditions and the solvent of liquid modernity. Dead on, dead on, saw it all coming. Because it was already there, the seeds were already there. But while Americans can, he says, perceive that they are faced with intricate social and cultural problems, they tend to think of them as scientific and technological problems to be solved separately. This gets them nowhere, he argues, because their problems are in fact all inextricably interlinked and have the same root cause, a radical nihilistic individualism at the heart of modern American liberalism. Not, not a new conversation for, for anyone in, in the country today and certainly not amongst us interdualists uh, as, we, as we have diagnosed for years, the individualism of, of orange um, and then the way in which green, of course, has exacerbated that, exacerbated that, that, that narcissism. And of course, we now see it showing up in, in the, um, the just overwhelming myopia uh, uh, towards rights in this country. Cancer, a cancerous level focus on just rights, never responsibilities. Um, we'll, we'll put off to the side whether that's part of a dialectic that swings back. Uh, I, I certainly believe it is, and I and I and I hope so. Um, but we are really at the apex of that polarity at this point. We've really swung the pendulum and swung really quite far. 
um, as of today in a, in a pandemic landscape. But this foreign observer, much like de Tocqueville himself also saw, uh, it often takes a foreign observer to, to really see very clearly what's, what's happening and, and to be able to diagnose it and to know what they're looking at. And this person was, I mean, Wang Huning was intrinsically an integral thinker, you know, early in his career, saw it all. So he says, the real cell of society in the United States is the individual, he finds. This is so because the cell most foundational per Aristotle to society, the family, has disintegrated. Meanwhile, in the American system, everything has a dual nature. And the glamour of high commodification abounds. Human flesh, sex, knowledge, politics, power, and law can all become the target of commodification. <clears throat> this commodification in many ways corrupts society and leads to a number of serious social problems. In the end, the American economic system has created human loneliness as its foremost product along with spectacular inequality. As a result, nihilism has become the American way, which is a fatal shock to cultural development and the American spirit. While I wouldn't take issue with this observation per se, I also think it's deeply partial. Um, the American spirit is profound. Uh, it is strong. It is resilient fundamentally. And the very same liberalism and freedom that in certain iterations and at certain moments of the dialectic or certain eras is cancerous or is problematic or is deeply um, imbalanced also creates, I think within the country and within the culture, a, a, a spirit of, of uh, ultimate resilience that when faced with enough hardship, can have emergent effects as a collective that are extraordinarily powerful and are not to be get bet against lightly. Don't know whether he sees that, um, but that's also another important component, I think, to uh, this, this, well, I call it a contest between the, the East and the West, and it is in, in some sort of angles of perception. But it's also itself a, a polarity, a fundamental polarity of <clears throat> of the universe that that is not um, fairly characterized as either east or west, and does live in both. Um, the, the The comparison of you know the collective spirit, individual spirit, um, freedom versus more top down control. Um, you know, a sense of traditionalism values versus um, versus other things. So. Um, it's, it's easy to talk in dichotomies as kind of a useful mental fiction, but it's important to know that, that they're not quite intended that way with that little nuance, but there's actually a lot more going on. The reason I bring this up is that what I'm looking for in this is that, yes, it se he seems to me to be a very integral thinker by kind of by just natural gifts and by study, the question is, is that actually going to show up in the way in which China runs its own affairs? Can it genuinely integrate what, what it's being handed? 
Um, for a lot of reasons that we could get into in this in this piece, the answer is no. I started out talking about how they're banning, you know, they're banning, um, they're banning the the, the kind of uh, the effeminate feminine in in the in the masculine. That's not an integral move. Uh, that's a that's a fundamentally a dissociative kind of shadow creating move of oppression um, that is is problematic and will will undermine their long term their long term project. Uh, at least in in my point of view, uh, so it's it's a lot of instances like that where we can juxtapose on the one hand a, a very very powerful integral intellectual at at the at you know running policy and 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 in a lot of ways doing some very smart things to understand the nature of the situation um, and of course what the the failings of 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 their opponent are but then turning around and making some mistakes themselves because they're not doing a good enough job to integrate. And it could be because they don't have a, they don't have an adequate enough developmental sensibility about what's happening with, with green and now emergent teal. That's just speculation, but those are the clues and the, and the kind of analysis I'm doing as I read something like this. Back to the article. Moreover, he says that the American spirit is facing serious challenges from new ideational competitors, reflecting on the universities he visited and quotingly and quoting quoted approvingly from Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, he notes a growing tension between Enlightenment liberal rationalism and a younger generation that is ignorant of traditional Western values and actively rejects its cultural inheritance. If the value system collapses, he wonders, how can the social system be sustained? This is the heart of the issue, 100%. He's 100% right. If the value system collapses, the social system can't be sustained. But what we can see is that it's not just a single value system that is under as under uh, or, or at issue. There's actually multiple value systems and they're all vying for domination or vying for uh, primacy inside of the American uh, cultural system. And while the shorthand, the developmental shorthand is a bit crude, totally admittedly, um, it, is, it is actually still a pretty useful shorthand, right? The, the, the progressive green open, uh, 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 liberated, uh, or, 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 uh, you know, individually emancipated value system of green, um, that also looks askance at tradition and it looks, um, uh, to some extent disparate, to some extent disparagingly at the orange value system of material progress, value optimization, um, you know, uh, flow of capital rationality, um, a, a kind of a, a, a mono, re, mono reality uh, view of the world or, or manner of sense making. Uh, and then of course, Amber and the traditional, the traditional agrarian values of, um, you know, God, home, family, and these kinds of things. So again, good, good diagnosis from the standpoint of the, of the surface level um 
and indeed the American spirit is facing these challenges because those value systems have gotten more pronouncedly fragmented in green itself, meaning the green informational technologies, the green social technologies and the green infoscape has, al has allowed for a balkanization of the value structures themselves into their, into their respective tribes. Now, this is a, a, you know, this is a lot of why I, I said four or five years ago, now what we are being reduced to, to some degree is a war for power because of the balkanization, what the, the lingua franca of the various value systems becomes now just a power contest, whether it be a power contest politically or, or, or economically and money-wise or um, in, uh, in, in, in culture, you know, the, the right to communicate your message in an exclusive way to, to, your, to the people who, uh, who, who are most um, loyal to that. Like this is the war for power that is underway because that's exactly what green does. Um, green dissolve, also dissolves these, these common binds because, because green is, rises concomitant with late stage capitalism. So it, it's, it, it is incredible how prescient he was in, in sort of foreseeing what we would to some degree, uh, what we're actually now encountering on college campuses um, as these value systems and value structures are, are, are in conflict. And we see the college kids um, who are coming from this kind of anti-institutional, green, uh, highly progressive, highly woke point of view, then trying to capture the institution um, and push back on the nature and notion of institutional power itself. Back to the article, ultimately he argues when faced with critical social issues like drug addiction, America's atomized, deracinated, and dispirited society has found itself with an insurmountable problem because it no longer has any coherent conceptual grounds from which to mount any resistance. Incredible. Once idealistic about America, at the start of 1989, the young Wang returned to China and promoted to Dean of Fudan's International Politics Department became a leading opponent of liberalization. He began to argue that China had to resist global liberal influence and become a culturally unified and self-confident nation governed by a strong centralized party state. He would develop these ideas into what has become known as China's neo-authoritarian movement. Though Wang never used the term identifying himself with China's neoconservatives. This reflected his desire to blend Marxist socialist socialism with traditional Chinese Confucian values and legalist political thought, maximalist Western ideas of state sovereignty and power and nationalism in order to synthesize a new basis for long-term stability and growth immune to Western liberalism. As I read that paragraph um, now multiple times, I kept thinking how, how close the bedfellows would be to some degree with our neoconservatives and our far right here in the United States with Wang in, in, in certain respects. Um, so much 
anti-liberalism, so much anti-institutional, anti-statism, anti um, even though at a foreign policy level, um, at a foreign policy level, the idea of state sovereignty and power becomes very, very important for the, uh, for the dignity, the self-dignity of China on the national stage. Uh, the recapturing of this Confucianist, uh, this uh, traditional Chinese Confucius values, much like the right is trying to recapture the um, the the what they see as the the founding uh, sort of uh, Protestant values of the U.S. He was most concerned with the question of how to manage China. One former Fudan student recalls. He was suggesting that a strong centralized state is necessary to hold this society together. He spent every night in his office and didn't do anything else. Wang's timing couldn't have been more auspicious. Only months after his return, China's own emerging contradictions exploded into view in the form of student protests in Tiananmen Square. After PLA tanks crushed the dreams of liberal democracy sprouting in China, CCP leadership began searching desperately for a new political model on which to secure the regime. They soon turned to Wang Huning. When Wang won national acclaim by leading a university debate team to victory in an international competition in Singapore in 1993, he caught the attention of Zhang Zemin, who had become party leader after Tiananmen. Wang, having defeated National Taiwan University by arguing that human nature is inherently evil, foreshadowed that while Western modern civilization can bring material prosperity, it doesn't necessarily lead to improvement in character. And by extension, he probably would argue happiness, well-being, or overall harmonious state functioning, civilizational functioning. Jiang plucked him from the university, and at the age of 40, he was granted a leadership position in the CCP's secretive Central Policy Research Office putting him on an inside track into the highest echelons of power. Wang Huning's nightmare. From the smug point of view of millions who now inhabit the Chinese internet, Wang's dark vision of American dissolution was nothing less than prophetic. When they look to the US, they no longer see a beacon of liberal democracy standing as an admired symbol of a better future. That was the impression of those who created the famous goddess of democracy with her paper mache torch held aloft before the gate of heavenly peace. Instead, they see Wang's America, deindustrialization, rural decay, over-financialization, out of control asset prices, and the emergence of a self-perpetuating rentier elite. Powerful tech monopolies able to crush any upstart competitors operating effectively beyond the scope of government. Immense economic inequality, chronic unemployment, addiction, homelessness, and crime, cultural chaos, historical nihilism, family breakdown, and plunging fertility rates. Societal, societal despair, spiritual malaise, social isolation, and skyrocketing rates of mental health issues a loss of national unity and purpose in the face of decadence and barely concealed self-loathing. Vast internal divisions, racial tensions, riots, political violence, and a country that increasingly seems close to coming apart. Th that a paragraph's obviously hard to read. Um, 
I think it goes too far by perhaps a, a fair amount. Uh, but as we all know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of partial truths in that. As a tumultuous 2020 roiled American politics, Chinese people began turning to Wang's America against America for answers. And when a mob stormed the US Capitol building on January 6, 2021, the book flew off the shelves. Out of print copies began selling for as much as $2,500 on Chinese e-commerce sites. But Wang is unlikely to be savoring the acclaim because his worst fear has become reality. The unstoppable undercurrent of crisis he identified in America seems to have successfully jumped Pacific. Despite all his and Xi's success in draconian suppression of political liberalism, many of the same problems Wang observed in America have nonetheless emerged to ravage China over the last decade as the country progressively embraced a more neoliberal capitalist economic model. Much the same argument I made in the Great Release and for the same reason. Um, true, they do not. They do not. Uh, they do not benefit from the uh, exorbitant privilege slash exorbitant curse, as I talk about it, of having the global world reserve currency, which allows us to finance all our mistakes and cover up all of our bad thing, all of our uh, uh, short-sighted thinking and terrible uh, national policy from our leadership with money, the way we can, because uh, we have the, the global reserve currency, and that's the fundamental um, driver of the Great Release. Um, well, it's one of the fundamental drivers of the Great Release, other than the complex adaptive system that occurred having after having won World War II and then become increasingly irresilient and sloppy in our decisions. But it's the reserve currency that allowed us to finance that arc of increasing, um, in, increasingly sort of suboptimal and, and poor uh, leadership, both in, uh, domestically and internationally. Um, Socialism with Chinese characteristics has rapidly transformed China into one of the most economically unequal societies on earth. It now boasts a Gini coefficient of officially around 0.47, worse than the US's 0.41. The wealthiest 1% of the population now holds around 31% of the country's wealth, not far behind 35% in the US. Most people in China remain relatively poor though. Some 600 million still subsist on a monthly income of less than $155 a month. Meanwhile, Chinese tech giants have established monopoly positions even more robust than their US counterparts, often with market shares nearing 90%. Corporate employment frequently features an exhausting 996, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Schedule. Others labor among struggling legions trapped up trapped by upfront debts in the vast system of modern day indentured servitude that is the Chinese gig economy. Up to 400 million Chinese are forecast to enjoy the liberation of such self-employment by 2036, according to Alibaba. The job market for China's ever-expanding pool of university graduates is so competitive that graduation equals unemployment. And that's a societal meme two words, graduation and unemployment, share a common Chinese character. And as young people have flocked to urban metropoles to search for employment, 
rural regions have been drained and left to decay, while centuries of communal extended family life have been upended in a generation, leaving the elderly to rely on the state for marginal care. In the cities, young people have been priced out of the property market by a red hot asset bubble. Meanwhile, contrary to trite Western assumptions of an inherently communal Chinese culture, the sense of atomization and low social trust in China has become so acute that it's led to periodic bouts of anguished societal soul searching after oddly regular instances in which injured individuals have been left to die on the street by passersby, habitually distrustful of being scammed. feeling alone and unable to get ahead in a ruthlessly consumerist society. Chinese youth increasingly describe existing in a state of nihilistic despair encapsulated by the online slang term Naijuan, involution, which describes a turning inward by individuals in society due to a prevalent sense of being struck, sorry, being stuck in a draining rat race where everyone inevitably loses. This despair has manifested itself in a movement known as Tang Ping or lying flat in which people attempt to escape that rat race by doing the absolute bare minimum amount of work required to live, becoming modern ascetics. I don't need to remind you that we've seen very similar uh, phenomena in the US in the last generation of people that were just trying to get off the treadmill, desperate to escape the matrix. Um, and, and, and I think that's it. It's that something about modern life of the last uh, at least 40 years increasingly has been characterized by a desperation to escape a whole different conversation to think about, you know, why that is and what the, the drivers are but very fascinating and remarkable to note it's arising both here and in in uh, in china I, and the reason i like that is it challenges us to become more uh intelligent integrative analysts about what is common what's really going on and what has explanatory power as to differences <clears throat> in this environment china's fertility rate has collapsed to 1.3 children per per woman as of 2020, below Japan and above only South Korea as the lowest in the world, plunging its economic future into crisis. Ending family size limits and government attempts to persuade families to have more children have been met with incredulity and ridicule by Chinese young people as being totally out of touch with economic and social reality. Quote, do they not yet know that most young people are exhausted just supporting themselves, end quote? Ask one typically viral post on social media. It's true that given China's cutthroat education system, raising even one child costs a huge sum. Estimates range between $30,000 to, which is seven times the um, average the annual average salary, to $115,000, depending on location. But even those Chinese youth who could afford to have kids have found they enjoy a new lifestyle. The coveted dinks, dual income, no kids, in which well-educated young couples, married or not, spend all that extra cash on themselves. 
as one thoroughly liberated 27-year-old man with a vasectomy once explained in the New York Times, quote, for our, for our generation, children aren't a necessity. Now we can live without any burdens. So why not invest our spiritual and economic resources on our own lives, end quote. So while Americans have today given up the old dream of liberalizing China, they should maybe look a little closer. It's true that China never remotely liberalized. If you consider liberalism to be about democratic election, free press and respect for human rights. By the way, we don't seem to be doing so well in some of those areas ourselves. Not to mention many people have in our in the Western sphere have very, very deep distrust in economic liberalism as we've been talking about. But many political thinkers would argue there's a more comprehensive definition of modern liberalism than that. Instead, they would identify liberalism's essential telos as being the liberation of the individual from all limiting ties of place, tradition, religion, associations, and relationships, along with all the material limits of nature in pursuit of the radical autonomy of the modern consumer. It really is the sort of philosophy of green taken to its extreme and also then reconfiguring um, and or perhaps kind of uh, importing the philosophy of orange and maximalizing it, uh, a, 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 a maximalist point of view as the ultimate political sovereign as the consumer uh, via orange and the, um, the, the sense of a, of a, a profound um, well, anti-everything, anti-structure, anti-institution, anti-norm, liberation of green, where every narrative is, is, is subject to, uh, to discarding, where every common bind is subject to um, being dissolved in the face of this individualism. And as I said, I don't think that China is going through this is actually that much of a surprise given that green is what's common from a, from a techno-economic point of view to both and late stage capitalism. From this perspective, back to the article, from this perspective, China has been thoroughly liberalized and the picture of what's happening to Chinese society begins to look far more like Wang's nightmare of a liberal culture consumed by nihilistic individualism and commodification. The grand experiment. It is in this context that Wang Huning appears to have won a long running debate within the Chinese system about what's now required for the People's Republic of China to endure. And this is where it gets, to me it gets really interesting. And I'm almost going to need a whole nother kind of discussion um, to, to do it justice, but I'll say a couple of things about it as I go. The era of tolerance for unfettered economic and cultural liberal, liberalism in China is over. And by the way, they are able to do, because of the nature of their political system, they're able to do much quickly, well, relatively quickly, comparatively, to what the right wing here wants to do in the US. And there probably are elements I have to think about. There are elements that the left wing would like to do too. But I, I just want to point out that the same response that, that Huning and Xi and they, they've had to some of this in China is not, it, it's, not a, it's not in a different universe. It's actually quite similar to what's actually happening here 
And there's a massive political contest going on for that capability to do that and to impose that here in the US. But as a democracy, no one can impose it upon us the way they can in China. This gets into really, really deep, actually an interesting uh, political philosophical waters. According to a leaked account by one of his old friends, Xi has found himself, like Wang, repulsed by the all-encompassing commercialization of Chinese society with its attendant nouveau riches, official corruption, loss of values, dignity, and self-respect in such moral evils as drugs and prostitution. I mean, that's something that could have come right off the Tucker Carlson show. Wang is now seemingly convinced Xi that they have no choice but to take drastic action to head off existential threats to social order being generated by Western-style economic and cultural liberal capitalism, threats nearly identical to those that scourge the U.S. This intervention has taken the form of the Common Prosperity Campaign, with Xi declaring in January that we must absolutely not allow the gap between rich and poor to get wider, and warning that achieving common prosperity is not only an economic issue, but also a major political issue related to the party, party's governing foundations. This is why anti-monopoly investigations have hit China's top technology firms with billions of dollars in fines and forced restructurings and strict new data rules have curtailed China's internet and social media companies. They're reigning in green. Amber is reigning in green the same way it wants to do here in the US. It's why record-breaking IPOs have been put on hold and corporations ordered to improve labor conditions with 996 overtime requirements made illegal and pay raised for gig workers. It's why the government killed off the private tutoring sector overnight and capped property rental price increases. It's why the government has announced excessively high incomes are to be adjusted. And it's why celebrities like Zhao Wei have been disappearing which to me just still boggles my mind that they can actually literally take someone who is, um, I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know what the, I don't know what the uh, proper analogy would be, but I suppose it'd be like the, you know, us erasing um, uh, Kim Kardashian, the American government erasing Kim Kardashian from existence. Um, and, you know, don't tell me about right-wingers being censored because they can still show up in all kinds of ways. We still have a very, very free and liberalized, um, uh, press, press, and, and technical infrastructure, relatively speaking. This is a complete erasure we're talking about here. And it's why celebrities like Zhao Wei have been disappearing, why Chinese miners have been banned from playing the spiritual opium of video games for more than three hours per week. To tell you, as an American parent, there are, <laughs> there are things about that that sound appealing. Why LGBT groups have been scrubbed from the internet and why abortion restrictions have been significantly tightened. I mean, this is a, the full-on amber blowback of green. Ken was right to point that out in uh, Trump in a post-truth world. I thought that was the, the 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 real value of his piece on that was showing just how virulent the the anti-green blowback is. Uh, it's 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 largely sourced spiritually and emotionally in amber, um, but there are certainly very very strong orange components to that as well. As one nationalist article promoted across state media explained, if the liberal West's tittytainment strategy is allowed to succeed in causing China's young generation to lose their toughness and virility, 
and we will fall just like the Soviet Union did. The purpose of Xi's profound transformation is to ensure that the cultural market will no longer be a paradise for sissy stars and news and public opinion will no longer be in a position of worshiping Western culture. You know, among other things, what they're blowing back here against is the fracturing of, of language and categories that Green does. Um, and, and, and what the postmodern philosophical project did and then aided by the green technologies that arose alongside it, the green information technologies, is it had the effect of being able to take binary, a binary world, binary language, binary, binary concepts, what have you, or not even just binary, but, but kind of, kind of uh, segmented and blow them into an infinite number of analogs. Um, pronouns are something that come to mind. I was reviewing a pronoun list with my uh, with my teenager um, just the other day, uh, talking about what's happening in, in the culture of his school. And and uh, the pronoun list that we reviewed had, oh, I don't know, maybe over 100, 100 pronouns, most of them, you know, with no sense at all to make of, of, of the sounds that they were composed of. Um, and so with something as powerful as language subject to this kind of fracturing, uh, you can see what they're what they're fighting for. They're they're fighting to try to lock down some version of a of a, of a monoculture, a cultural monoculture. Um, in the end, the campaign represents Wang Huning's triumph and his terror. It's thirty years of his thought on culture made manifest in policy. On one hand, it is worth viewing honestly the level of economic, technological, cultural, and political upheaval the West is currently experiencing and considering whether he may have accurately diagnosed a common undercurrent spreading through our globalized world. On the other, the odds that his gambit to engineer new societal values can succeed seems doubtful, considering the many failures of history's other would-be engineers of the soul. I basically agree here. I think that this is, the he seems to be a very, very smart, intelligent analyst, as I've said. Um, as a strategist, I'm less convinced. And I think an integral view here would have aided them greatly in thinking about the strategy of integration that's necessary. Um, I don't believe because, because the forces here, I think are fundamentally technological and fundamentally um, uh, material and artifactual. I don't think the genie goes back in the bottle, especially if, if China wants to stay on the leading edge technologically relative to its military. So if you start to think about it from a geopolitical point of view and the technology evolution that's gonna be required for them to do so, to actually continue to try to um, uh, be a superpower, um, there's, it's not clear to me how you actually pull both off. I don't know how you develop a civilization which is that technically capable without also having some of the, 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 uh, the cultural fruits of that technology. Obviously that is what they're attempting to do. To kind of have their cake and eat it too, I uh, I don't know that that's that's possible. And frankly, from an integral point of view, an, an integral worldview may have been able to um, engineer and uh, and to uh, have a far more sensitive, a far more um, integrative, a far more ethical uh, in in our point of view um, geo strategy. One that actually, as it's, and by the way, it's the same one I've been arguing for in the U.S. That we're being we're being equally stupid with not 
being teal thinkers about the geostrategy if if this diagnosis is correct if the diagnosis is that we are we are to some degree suffering the downstrokes of green culture and and technology then the appropriate move is to move to integration that the emergent power that is necessary to reconfigure the evolutionary stack is coming would come from teal and my same critique of of Huning's strategy and his failure here is the same critique I make of both the 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 the, the ultra left uh, wokeists as well as the regressive rightists. Not in neither case do you get the the do you move to the next stage of evolution and and actually uh, capture the power of green, which is the power to convene, um, while but without doing it with the power to integrate. You cannot, I don't believe, regress uh, the cultural evolutionary line here. Um, but they're clearly trying. And so from a, from a pure kind of uh, geostrategic experiment, experimental point of view, or from us just watching the data of these, these, these experiments that are going to go on between these two systems, it's fascinating. It will be fascinating to watch what is to be learned by different strategies and approaches um, because these problems are real. And by the way, none of this, we've not even thrown in climate change, which is the, which is the elephant in the room to, to all of this. Uh, so uh, almost done here. Uh, if you've got to this point in the video, you've been very patient, but um, hopefully it's been somewhat useful for you. The best simple proxy to measure this effort in coming years is likely to be demographics. I would disagree with that, but let me continue. For reasons not entirely clear, many countries around the world now face the same challenge. Fertility rates that have fallen below the replacement rate as they've developed into advanced economies. Doesn't seem particularly mysterious um, for the reasons that we've been talking about, that there is a certain kind of inward facing individual narcissistic, slightly narcissistic, um, enjoyment of, of, of late stage cultural, social, and, and economic products in green and in late stage capitalism, where the traditional meaning structure of raising kids and having family is not, it's not as animating, not to mention that's expensive as hell. And so the obstacles feel serious. This has occurred across a diverse array of political systems and shows little sign of moderating. Besides immigration, a wide range of policies have now been tried in attempts to raise birth rates from increased public funding of childcare services to pro-natal tax credits for families with children. None have been consistently successful. No, I, I don't think they would be. Uh, sparking anguish debate in some quarters on whether losing the will to survive and reproduce is simply a fundamental factor of modernity. While that's a really, really kind of harsh way to say it. I think there's, I think there's a significant element of truth in that, although it would need to be, there's a lot of nuance that would need to be, be unpacked in that. But if any country can succeed in reversing this trend, no matter the brute force effort required, it is likely to be China. Maybe we have to analyze that a bit. Either way, our world is witnessing a grand experiment that's now underway, China and the West facing very similar societal problems have now, thanks to Wang Huning, embarked on radically different approaches to addressing them. 
and with China increasingly challenging the United States for a position of global geopolitics and ideological leadership, the conclusion of this experiment could very well shape the global future of governance for the century ahead. 100%, I totally agree with that last paragraph and, and, and that's the author, N.S. Lyons and I um, see this very similarly, why this is so interesting, why it's so important to be, to, to be, um, to be watching this. So uh, if you're still with me, again, uh, thanks for um, tuning in. Uh, this is a very different format, but I really felt like I wanted to bring this to your attention and provide just a real, little bit of real-time commentary on it in a very ad hoc way. Uh, perhaps this will be uh, something we can get into in, um, uh, in further conversations or, uh, or you know, be, be fuel for further thinking uh, in the integral life um, uh, conversation series that we do. As always, thanks for being with us. Take care.